food is great, but in the end, it enables so many other things that are what we truly want for our joy and meaning, such as our close connections with other people. Hi everyone! Today, Kiki Atunito is interviewing me about my eating disorder recovery story. I recovered from several years of eating disorders after I finally discovered Dr. Shan Geisinger's biological theory about how eating disorders work, called the adapted to famine theory. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit and chat with me. I have been so looking forward to this conversation. So to give a little background, my name is Kiki Atanito. I have been a mental health psychotherapist, master's level, for 20 years now. I'm a certified nutritionist, so I brought health and wellness into my practice, and I'm also a board-certified addiction professional. I began studying evolutionary psychology several years ago, and its links to addictions and eating disorders were of particular interest to me. So I was elated when I came across you and the incredible content you were producing with regard to how you actually recovered from an eating disorder using the adapted to famine model from Sean Geisinger and how you actually put this into action. Because as a therapist, I think that many of the principles are wonderful in theory. However, my concern and what I'm working on right now with the treatment manual I'm developing for eating disorders is how to translate these to the actual patient client themselves, um, how the therapist can get that across. So I am so excited to hear about your own experience and your own journey. So the first thing I want to say, Michelle, is just kudos to you for being in recovery, being in remission from an eating disorder. This, as you know, is a very devastating mental illness, and it is extremely challenging to overcome. It is sadly the most fatal mental illness in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and you have overcome it. So I just want to say how impressed I am with you and how you're really a role model for so many. Thank you, Kiki. I wouldn't have been able to overcome any of the behaviors that eating disorders trigger unless I had discovered the kind of work that people put out for free online. I'm really just endlessly grateful for all these resources that are out there and I can't wait to share more about them today and how by taking them I came up with more practical strategies to fight the disease. Beautiful. And there's there's an expression in the 12-step fellowship where we say you can't keep, keep what you have unless you give it away. And you're certainly producing your own amazing content. So let's dive right into some of the questions that I had for you. Um, the first thing I'd love to know, Michelle, is when did you realize you had an eating disorder? What was that process like? Oh, I had it for several years. And the interesting thing is that the very first time I lost enough weight to lose my period, I actually did not get any of the anorexic behaviors. And this was when I was 15 and I first joined the cross country team at my school. So I was running a lot every day, I lost weight, I lost my period. And I saw a nutritionist who upped my calorie intake and within a few months I got my period back. And so this all resolved and I didn't have any of the behaviors like hyperactivity, food restriction, any of that. However, when I was 17, I started having some bad reactions to food. And those reactions turned out to be undiagnosed food allergies that included things like wheat. So in an effort to start feeling better, and because I didn't know what was causing my problems, I started cutting out lots of food groups, such as carbs. And I, this was 2015, I got on the keto diet, which by the right. way is terrible, <laughs> terrible for you, for your arteries, for yes. your health. It's, it's absolutely horrible. Um, yeah. Don't do it. <laughs> I, yeah, anyway. But, uh, you heard because, it here first. <laughs> yeah, because of all of that, I lost weight. And that's when I developed anorexia. And for me, the most significant symptoms were that I restricted food a lot. And also I was hyperactive. So I soon entered a family-based eating disorder treatment program, which I'll talk more about later, and how it was actually a very negative experience that worsened my disorder. So that was when and I was that, 17. Mm, go ahead. And that, that eating disorder treatment that you entered, um, was there a model, was there a type of, of therapy that was based in? So the eating disorder therapist I saw through that program primarily used DBT, dialectical-based therapy, okay. and I think a little bit mm -hmm. of CBT. Okay. So it was only when I was 22 that finally I discovered Dr. Shan Geisinger's adapted to famine theory, and finally with this biological understanding, I finally could recover mentally and physically. And wow. the whole time, I never really identified with being anorexic until I was 22 and finally realized that all my behaviors were so beautifully described by Dr. Shan Geisinger's work. Because before that, all the doctors made it seem like anorexia was something that people who want to 
lose weight on purpose and look skinny had. And that was never the case with me. In fact, it was the opposite. And I like how Dr. James Greenblatt, who's chief medical officer of Walden Behavioral Care's eating disorder programs, puts it. He describes how anorexia is a biological brain-based illness. It is highly genetic and it is sustained by starvation and malnutrition. And starvation and malnutrition disrupt normal brain function in ways which trigger evolutionary adaptive behaviors. So therefore, anorexia is not just a psychological disorder only caused by psychosocial factors. And treating it that way has led to the many failures we now see. As you mentioned, anorexia is the deadliest mental illness. And 50% of patients relapse after one year of traditional treatment. And 25% still have symptoms after 10 years of treatment. So clearly the current model is not working. And now I'll describe more about what it was like when I first got anorexia at 17. I'm a little unique in that I was a little different from most females growing up in that I always want to appear bigger and stronger. And this is because I'm just in a naturally skinnier frame. My parents are like this, my whole family is like this. So starting in middle school, teachers and people would start to comment on how skinny I was. Like people would literally like grab my wrists and just make all these comments. And of course, as a very impressionable young female, I was really self-conscious about this. So I always wish like, oh, I wish I could be in a bigger body. And that's why I did things like strength training. At 17, again, my eating behavior changed after I got these food allergies and started feeling intense symptoms after eating. It was really hard to think straight. Then I started getting hyperactive once I restricted food. And I exercised thinking, okay, if I lift weights and stuff, it'll help me get bigger, it'll help me grow muscles. But the problem was that of course, because I wasn't eating enough, especially carbs, I wasn't able to actually build my body and that in fact, I was actually breaking it down. And emotionally, when I was anorexic, I was way more stressed out and anxious than I already naturally am. Like I already have the kind of temperament which is hyper conscientious. Mm -hmm. And when I was restricting food, it was like the anxiety just went tenfold in terms of I was constantly always obsessing over how much did I intake? Well, like what's my output of energy? I measured food down to like the gram because I was just so neurotic over it. And I became so irritable and also very, very clinging to routine in terms of needing to eat exactly what I had planned out like a day and ahead and never drifting from the schedule which of course made social life very difficult. <laughs> in general, all these restrictive behaviors just made me almost like enslaved to my own brain. I didn't feel anymore like I was in control of my life, even though paradoxically, I was trying to exercise so much control over it and control every single minute it felt like. And for me, the feeling of being hungry and starving almost gave me a feeling of clarity and this is something that Dr. James Greenblatt, you had sent me his one of his recent webinars, he talked about how with, with in people who have genes which predispose them to anorexia, when they starve, they'll actually feel a little better during it mentally, even though it's all a lie. And for me, when I was starving, I honestly did feel mentally like I could think straighter. And of course, this is all a lie. I don't have diagnosed OCD, but I can have some pretty OCD tendencies, which were all exacerbated by anorexia. People could see me becoming thinner and they were concerned about me. And I really appreciate the ones who approached me with care and concern rather than showing judgment because people who show judgment, they were obviously the ones who I didn't want to listen to, who would I want, who I would want to run away from. In general, it was really helpful to meet warm, caring, empathetic people, people like you, who people with eating disorders can feel like they can trust because you approach things with such non-judgment and compassion. We're all in this thing called life doing our best every single day. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for that amazingly vivid and eloquent description um, of a very unfortunate experience and time in your life. You, a few things you said really struck me. Um, you, sp you spoke about the fact that the restriction actually was the precursor to the intense physical movement, the obsession with physical movement, and the psychological uh, obsessions. And you really gave credence to the concept that this is a highly biological, physical um, uh, illness in the nature, in the sense that something happens to our body and then things take over. And yes, the mind takes over after that. I think that's, that's really not... Um, given as much attention as it ideally should be. And I've studied the work for a while of Dr. Cindy Bulick at the University of um, North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And she's actually studying direct correlations between OCD and anorexia, which does not surprise me whatsoever. I think that there's a lot to be done in that area. So, so many of the things that you 
mention are not only um, very refreshing to hear and make perfect sense, but I think are also um, afflictions shared by so many people who have eating disorders and have been approached by society such as, um, you know, it's the influence of modern, it's the influence of social media, it's the influence of your mother when you were growing up, you know, things like this that um, may or may not be uh, uh, contributing, but I think that you're really discussing a, um, a very biological uh, response going on. Right, right. And it's great how by learning that this disorder is more biologically based, people can feel less shame about having an eating disorder because part of the reason that a lot of people don't disclose these things, even though eating disorders are so prevalent, is that people fear being judged. Because typically when we think about the stereotypical person with an eating disorder, we think, oh, it's this girl trying to look really pretty. She is really obsessed with herself, really selfish, has control issues. And all of these are such damaging stereotypes that keep people from actually recovering. Because also therapists kind of end up blaming patients like this. And the patients end up feeling really terrible about themselves. And it's really sad. Absolutely. And I work with many, many clients in larger bodies who say, um, it, 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 it's not possible that I have anorexia, but I feel like I do. Oh, it's possible. So mm -hmm. there are so many... Um, there are so many nuances to the way that we uh, use labels and diagnostics. And uh, I think we really need a turnaround in many ways to be able to recognize the the broad base um, of this of this particular illness, which is beginning to happen um, in the DSM. They are expanding categories a bit, which is certainly encouraging. Um, but I think the fact that it's in the DSM definitely suggests that this is getting a highly uh, psychological um, level of attention. And I think that, like I said, you know, you bringing it back to the biology is, is really, really beautiful. So, Michelle, you mentioned that you were in uh, a treatment intervention in regard regarding family-based eating disorder therapy before you discovered adapted to famine. I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that. Right. So this was in 2016. When I was 17, I entered the family-based eating disorder outpatient treatment program. And I entered this program because I had gone to my primary care doctor previously, and she noticed that I had a lot of classic anorexia symptoms. I was underweight, I had bruises that weren't healing, I was really cold, my heart rate was just hovering about 50 beats per minute. She said that because I was under 18, I was still living with my parents, that I was probably best treated by family-based eating disorder therapy. The first step was to see a therapist and do an intake for the program. What disappointed me was that right away, the therapist labeled me as someone who was really willfully trying to lose weight. And I was terrified of this because I knew that most people would assume this when they see a girl with weight loss. So I had actually written a letter to her and all the doctors I saw afterward, right before I even saw them, just explaining like, hey, I lost weight by accident. I don't know why I'm getting all these symptoms from food, why I can't tolerate it, etc. And they had all told me that I'd read this letter and then they just basically ignored it. They just said, okay, this person is being defiant. Not once during my entire time being treated in the family-based program did any of the medical providers ever ask me why or how I began to lose weight. And looking back, I think this was a very shocking oversight because it's almost like seeing a person who's maybe was in a car accident for drunk driving and not asking them, okay, well, what caused the accident? Can we fix what triggered it? rather than just bandaging you up afterward. So yes, it is important, I think, that medical care providers have a more broad understanding of what can cause weight loss, including things like allergies, which a lot of people do develop later in life, which isn't as well known either. Back to my time in family-based eating disorder treatment, it was at one of the top children's hospitals in the country. So of course, my parents are very impressed by all these fancy doctors, and they're like, okay, we have to listen to everything they say. As it turns out, it was a really terrible experience for both me and my parents. Family-based treatment, which is also called FBT, is based on a model of parents being given complete control over their child's food intake. And I think this model can work, but only if the relationships between the parent and child are already healthy. And for me personally, my family relationships had already been very dysfunctional for several years. And actually, one of my parents was having disorder eating at the time. So it made absolutely no sense to give people with disordered eating themselves control over a child with disordered eating, attempting to make that child eat in a more typical fashion. 
I strongly think that in FBT, there needs to be also psychological evaluation of the parents before they're given such complete control over the children. So my parents in the program were in control and I rebelled a lot in the sense that I often would sometimes eat like more food than they gave me. Also, my parents, because of the program, they felt very empowered to do things that that I think most people would consider inappropriate. My parents said and did a lot of things that they're really deeply sorry for to this day. And in general, meal meal times are like battlegrounds and that there are lots of tears, lots of things are thrown around. Yes, I did recover my weight, but my mental health was a disaster. And my parents also were really distraught by the whole end of the program. And the relationship between my parents and I had deteriorated to the point where for several years, I could barely talk to them. And every single time I did see them during holidays or things, I was really fearful of them, of them seeing my body, of them judging my food. I had constant nightmares about eating, eating in front of other people, especially. So in college, which I entered after the FBT program, there are, of course, communal dining halls. And I would feel so self-conscious eating in those dining halls because I always, it was like the, the ghost of the past was still there, as in I always had this irrational fear that everyone around me is like judging my food and they're all like criticizing me and all this kind of stuff. It got so bad that eventually in my sophomore year in college, I would start taking my food at the dining hall and then just like go into my room and eating it alone. Which of course is sad because college is a time to be social, to be branching out more. But for me, I just was so ashamed of myself thinking that I was crazy. I felt like it would never be okay for me to eat food in front of anybody ever again. And of course, the whole time the FBT program had not gone to the root of my weight loss cause, which is all these food allergies going on. So I was still getting all these terrible symptoms after eating. I thought I was crazy. I didn't know anything that was wrong with me. It was only when I saw doctors who actually listened to me that I finally also recovered more and gained more confidence in myself. And this was around 2019 when I lost the most amount of weight I had ever lost in my whole entire life. And I really needed medical care. I knew that I didn't want to go back to those doctors I'd seen before. At this point, I had also discovered more about plant-based eating. Luckily, I live just two hours south of True North Health Center, where there are some really amazing plant-based physicians. I had watched a lot of their webinars online, and they really st stood out to me as people who are very up-to-date on the latest nutrition knowledge and very compassionate in general. So what I did was I first contacted Dr. Anthony Lim. He's a staff physician at True North Health Center. And I explained to him that I'm trying really hard to gain weight and I have no idea why it isn't happening. And he recommended that I see Dr. Chila Varesh, who is a naturopath at that center. I saw Dr. Varesh several times up there and she was a miracle in that she was one of the first physicians who ever listened to me and truly with, did not judge me at all. I was terrified about opening up because in the past I was used to explaining things like, oh, I eat plant-based and, and just being like judged right away for that and being told like you're orthorexic and all this, which isn't helpful. And she, she listened to me and she also heard me explain how, hey, I'm hyperactive. I don't know why. I, I don't know what's going on with me, why I keep losing weight. And she was importantly gentle, but firm as in she heard me out and she said, okay, I can see you're trying your best, but we need to try even more with upping your food intake, decreasing your activity, and really focusing on caloric density. I saw both her and a plant-based primary care physician near to where I live in the Bay Area, who also was very understanding of me. And with their care, as well as through discovering online resources, such as Dr. Geisinger's work and the work of eating disorder coach Tabitha Farrar, whose work is inspired by Dr. Geisinger's adapted famine theory, I finally was able to recover. Wow, another uh, eloquent description, Michelle. You, you said so many things that stayed with me. One is that when conventional treatment models uh, come in and do an intake assessment on a client, it sounds like they are focused on what happened as a consequence of the weight loss, as opposed to how the weight loss actually happened, working with the um, assumption that the weight loss was just deliberate. We just, we want to lose weight. This is a society in which we just are seeking to reduce our body size. And so there really was not proper attention given to what was going on with you. You were also invalidated and told, you know, this, no, this is really the case. So it sounds like a lot more listening and open-mindedness open needs to happen at the front end, as opposed to here's how we 
treat everything um, later on. You know, you also spoke about Dr. Uh, Sheila Varesh, who I had the pleasure of meeting um, back this spring, and I had a wonderful craniosacral therapy with her. I can concur that she is just a phenomenal, uh, tough love, but but. Uh, such a, a warm-hearted woman who has every client's best interest in mind. And she is a wonderful representation of uh, doctors willing to really help support individuals who wish to recover on a whole food plant-based lifestyle, on a healthy lifestyle, without demonizing uh, concepts of, you know, talking about concept of orthorexia, de demonizing the concept that vegans and vegetarians cannot recover on this lifestyle because that itself is representative of an eating disorder. As a therapist, I function with meeting my clients exactly where they are. So if someone tells me what's working for them, we're going to continue working with what works for them to be able to implement those changes. Complete overhauls can be a little bit um, can be a little bit uh, jarring to everyone and I think they just send people running in the in the opposite direction. I did have a question for you because I, I am highly familiar with the work of Tabitha Farrar. And I know that one thing uh, she discusses is that uh, a lot of the mental obsessions will diminish when some weight restoration is restored, if not most of the weight restoration. So you noted over the, the period of time that you did restore some of your weight. Did you notice any of the physical movement or any of the obsessions beginning to dissipate at all? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. I think that as my weight increased, my mental health improved exponentially in that when I was at my lowest weight, I was consumed with thoughts of hunger and food 24-7. And as I slowly gained weight, I found that my brain could finally accept thoughts of other things in my life, about all my other varied interests. And it was like eating food was like releasing me from the shackles of my disorder in a way that was liberating both physically and mentally. And I love how Tabitha Farrar describes it as mental hunger that patients experience when they're at such drastically low weights. There's a term, you know, like hunger plus being angry equals being hangry. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I was pretty much hangry all the Aww. time, just like right. hangry, irritable, a terrible person to be around. My personality was just all wacky all over the place because my hormones were also just going crazy. I mean, during the period of weight restoration, it, it's definitely a little rocky too. And that as you slowly start to restore weight, like, yeah, your hormones start kicking back in. It feels like going through puberty all over again. It's pretty, sure. pretty, it can be pretty terrible. Like you can go on an emotional roller coaster and, you know, just the physical act of eating so much food. Can stir up a lot of emotions in people like for me it felt like so vulnerable to be to be doing this but in the tail end of recovery i could see more and more how i felt happier i felt more energetic i was less snappy all the time especially over food i was obsessing less over food and i finally had more freedom in my life yeah that makes complete sense i often have clients who say to me i just can't stop obsessing about food and and the thing is you're probably hungry and you're probably just hungry and then you you really bring into into play the idea that once we begin restoring weight emotions come back and that happens on a biological and, and hormonal uh, level it also happens because the time spent obsessing around food is now diminishing and so with my clients I call it the crowding out theory where the foods we eat are the secondary foods and the foods of life the nourishment we get from soul for, on the soul level from our family friends career social life uh, creativity, spirituality, that's the primary food. While the primary foods begin to crowd out the secondary foods, we have so much more accessible to us, but it also requires the spectrum package deal of feeling emotions because we can't sign up for the very high without having to go through some lows. I love that. I love how you put that. Yeah, it's a package deal. But, but when you sign up, it, it's it's worth having bought that ticket, you know. Um, yeah. So so Michelle, uh, take us into when you discovered Sean, Sean Geisinger and the Adapted to Famine model. Right before that, it was 2019, and I was at my lowest BMI ever, and I essentially had to spend months on bed rest. I was literally unable to do all the physical activities I used to. I just laid in bed or on a yoga mat all day. My brain was going crazy, like, what do I do if I can't exercise or do any of this? 
So of course, what I did was get nerdy and listen to a lot of podcasts. And mm -hmm. I actually feel really lucky in that I also have a visual disability. I have severe chronic pain in my eyes due to accommodative spasm. Because of that, I started, yeah, really getting into podcasts. And in particular, I stumbled upon one called Beat Your Genes, which features the work of Dr. Doug Lau and Dr. Jen Hawk. And it's an evolutionary psychology-based podcast in which they basically explain about how life works. I had known about evolutionary theory before, but mainly applied to biology and not psychology. So I continued to listen to Beat Your Genes all the time. Then in 2020, in a Chef AJ interview, someone asked Dr. Lau what he'd do for the treatment of anorexia. Instantly, my ears perked up because this is a question that Dr. Lau has answered before, but I was still struggling with this problem. And Dr. Lyle this time mentioned that he'd recommend the work of Dr. Shan Geisinger because Dr. Lyle's word means so much to me. Instantly, I looked up Dr. Shan Geisinger and her work and read more about the adaptive famine theory. And it clicked with me right away. Absolutely. You and me both, because when he, when I heard him mention her, I was right to her website and it was just like, like bingo, light bulbs going off. Um, yeah. So, so tell us what you learned. What did you glean from, from her work? And, you know, were there, were there parts of information that she offered that you felt particularly applicable to you or thing, was there anything that you read that you thought, not sure about this? These are excellent questions. So in essence, I learned through the adaptive famine hypothesis that my anorexic urges were normal biological adaptations. So I had spent years in the past being told I was crazy, and finally I realized, no, I was sane. And also through behavioral genetics, I finally understood that my personality, which is overly conscientious and perfectionistic, lends itself to anorexia. So again, I could understand more about how I was looking at the world in a more distorted way due to how I'm wired and how I could overcome that distortion by seeing, okay, I tend to get a little more worked up over tiny details when I don't need to be. I don't need to like track every single last calorie. I also had a bunch of aha moments when reading Tabitha Ferrara's blog and work because she takes Shan Geisinger's theory and had applied it to her own life. And she writes very honestly about her own struggles with anorexia, and her books described exactly my own behaviors. So here are five of my greatest aha moments. First, I realized that me thinking about food all the time was the consequence of that mental hunger, which we've talked about before. I realized that to stop my constant thoughts about food, I had to eat. This was really motivating to me to help push me to eat because I was so sick and tired of, again, being hangry and just only being able to think about food. Like I would sit in college lectures just thinking about how hungry I was. And it was ridiculous because I had food right in my backpack, but I just like couldn't take it and eat it. It just felt so wrong to eat it. And I wasn't able to give my friends and family the mental energy and attention that I wanted to. To speak about this in evolutionary terms, I felt like a really bad member of the tribe in terms of my ability yeah. to support people who I cared about. So I knew like, okay, I need to eat if I want to be able to help others more. Second, my aha moment was that I realized after reading more about the biology of how a starving body's metabolism goes into overdrive, such as what's shown by the Minnesota starvation experiments, that I had to eat a lot. And I mean a gigantic, ginormous, enormous amount that is far beyond what I thought I could cram into my stomach. And by this I meant I was eating like three meals, three snacks daily, doing zero movement. And I was eating like huge caloric densities, eating massive portions. This goes a little against the whole food plant-based principle, but I think that people who are at really unhealthy low body weights do benefit from things like adding oil to their diets because oil is so easily absorbed by the body, which is starving for fat. So sure, it's highly calorically mm -hmm. dense without being a lot of volume. Exactly, exactly. And people can't, people can't gain weight eating 10 pounds of salad a day. Like it is so much easier to eat a jar of nut butter or something else, right. get those calories in, and not deal with all the GI distress that is already happening because the body is already compromised by not having enough energy. So again, the second aha was I had to eat a lot and I had to stop caring what other people would think about that. And luckily, my family at this point was very supportive of me eating huge volumes. They're just like, yeah, go for the kitchen, Michelle. So I basically felt like I lived in the kitchen. It was great. Third aha was that extreme hunger and binge eating that, as a result of that hunger 
were natural mechanisms activated to help one restore weight. So before discovering Shan Geisinger's work, I was in essence restricting food all day and then at night I would just binge. This is very common in people who are restricting on food. Dr. Geisinger's theory accurately predicted that people who are almost weight recovered but not quite there will get the compulsion to binge because the body's finally like starting to wake up. It like realizes it needs food. So many people at this stage, they get really scared of the hunger because it is so extreme. It's a hunger they've never felt in their whole lives. People will feel like they can just spend a whole day eating and never be able to stop once they start a meal. And in FBT treatment, no doctors had ever told me about this stage, and in all my other readings online, nobody had talked about this happening. Dr. Geisinger's work empowered me to realize that no, like, if you want to binge, do it because this is your body needing these calories. It also helped me to know that this extreme hunger would only resolve if I ate adequately throughout the day, aka if I didn't restrict throughout the day and eat a bunch at night. So even now, I always make sure to have a very big hearty breakfast to set me up well for the whole day. I don't skip breakfast, do this intermittent fasting, all these other things, because I know that I want my body to know it's safe. I want to know there's always food there. There's definitely not a famine anywhere in sight. Question. So when you eat that hearty breakfast, when you're eating these foods, are these, or were these foods that you identified that weren't causing allergies to you? Were you able to identify what was causing the sensitivities and be, and able to recover on foods that were okay with your body? Yes, so I discovered I had those food allergies to things like wheat, which is pretty much everywhere, when I was 20. So by this time, I was able to identify what was triggering all these problems, and I was able to remove them from my diet and find calorically dense appropriate substitutes which could help me gain weight. In particular, I discovered this one company called Functional Formularies, which makes meal liquid supplements. They're also incidentally uh, vegan, organic, all this good stuff. Also, because they're FDA approved, they can be covered by our medical insurance. And also they are approved to be used as tube feeding formulas. I was able to get their products and those really helped me gain weight because they're full of all this typical plant-based goodness and also very calorically dense and easy on the body. That's great to know for other people out there. Um, you know, I'm curious, uh, you're going through this process, Michelle, you're walking us through this and it, you were really, you exhibited so much strength, so much courage and so much wisdom to be able to say, this makes sense. And now I'm going to do this. What was it like on an emotional, on a soul level to actually feel full, to actually, um, be doing something that has been, that was against so much of what you were pre-programmed to do for so long. How, how was it for you? It was terrifying at first. It was terrifying to finally eat to a point where I felt like I could feel my stomach and actually like take a little longer time for a meal and, and to try to ignore the, the demons in my head telling me like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Right, right. Because as Dr. Shan Geisinger has explained, people with anorexia, they actually feel like it is morally wrong to be eating a lot. For some reason, when I when I denied myself food, I felt so proud of myself. I was like, ah, yes, I'm taking one for the team. Like, yes, like the village is satisfied because I'm happy because I'm restricting, which is the opposite of what should happen. And my friends who have talked to about this, they also describe how eating at dining halls or just taking food, they feel so guilty for some reason. And when they, when they do choose the lower calorie option, they feel the anxiety go down. So... To go against my instinct, I remember the first times I really was like, okay, I'm going to do three meals, three snacks a day, eat a bunch. I probably ended up in tears at, at some points after meals, and I don't cry that often, but it just felt so uncomfortable to, to eat. It was so uncomfortable. Uh, but again, I had to keep in mind what were my values, and my values were being able to do things like be there for my friends. And also, like I said, for me, this is not true of all people, but for me, I at some point realized like, hey, I do look scarily skinny because people told me I did. And I want to feel more comfortable going outside and like actually seeing people and not getting these like concerned looks. So there's also a motivator in terms of wanting to be socially accepted. But definitely when I was first eating full and very dense meals, it sparked a lot of physical and mental reactions in me. Like physically, I thought I would almost have like a panic attack. I was like, oh my gosh, this is just like 
too much fat. I can feel the fat in my arteries. It's, it's calcifying in me. It's hurting me. And again, I just had to keep reading the literature and reminding myself that I don't want to feel this way anymore because I was sick of being cold all the time, thinking about food all the time, all these things. All that pain outweighed the temporary discomfort that I knew I would have to endure to finally recover. And that makes complete sense. As Dr. Doug Lyle speaks about, we're always running the CBA, the, the cost-benefit analysis. And as I've worked in the addiction field for many years, and I can tell you that my clients take on the, the challenging but, but rewarding task of recovery when the costs finally outweigh the benefits, but they have to see it. No treatment provider, nobody outside them can see it. They have to see it themselves. And, you know, one thing I think is very common is for individuals in early recovery to say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put, you know, I'm going to eat my three meals and three snacks, et cetera. And then once the weight comes on, there's that tendency to pull out and to, you know, swim back to the side of the pool because there's that fear I may drown. And so it's for what you were able to do is you continued swimming and it goes to show one of the expressions I always use is the only way out is through. And you actually, you know, you, you went through it. Um, how about that exercise compulsion? What happened with that? So my exercise compulsion was intense. In essence, from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep, when I was anorexic, I thought I had to be moving. My hyperconscious mind was like, if you don't get in your, at least your morning overly intense workout and work out to the point of feeling faint, then you're gonna, you're gonna die later in the day or something like that. And of course, there's so much literature online telling us exercise improves your mood, exercise releases stress, and of course, high intensity interval training high intensity exercise has been really heavily promoted nowadays. So a lot of people are jumping on this bandwagon where they're like, the harder you push it, the better for your brain. I of course bought into all this and that just fueled my exercise obsession. So I was doing workouts pretty much like before and after every single meal. I was always finding a way to move somehow. So for example, after doing the dishes, if I was drying them with a towel, I'd like pace around the whole place while drying the dishes. And even while eating, I would constantly run back and forth to like add more food to my plate, which was really just like a little bit of like a tiny little bird portion at a time. And also it was just an excuse to like walk around more for some reason. I really never got why I was so hyperactive. Like why did I always have the urge to move? Why can't I sit still? Then I'd read Dr. Shan Geisinger's work, which explained that this is your body trying to migrate. And finally, finally, I understood what was happening in my body. And also it made me feel comfortable enough to ignore that exercise compulsion because I knew that I'm obviously not in a famine today. There's the fridge downstairs I can go to and open. Also, all this excess movement is just taking away energy and time for me. Of course, I knew that I was supposed to move less. But the thing is that people had told me before that I wanted to move more because I was trying to, you know, control my body shape or size. But like I explained, I actually wanted to get bigger. I just didn't know how to get bigger. Because what people had explained to me, the causality of my symptoms just made no sense to me. I ended up just not really buying into what they said. And it was just being able to tell myself I'm not in a famine that really helped me. And I think Tabitha recommends that people at least like 20 minutes after a meal just try to sit down and just stay still. Yes. And that yes. is something that I employed and really helped me. Because once I got through that first 20 minutes, I kind of forgot about the need to move. <laughs> like, it, like the need to move yeah. was most strong right after eight. I'd have some crazy thought like, okay, I should do some push-ups. I should do some pull-ups. I should, maybe I should like go like purge this or something. So it was really helpful to have that like, no, sit down, stay here. I also tried to structure my environment in ways that I would be like forced to sit with the food rather than try to go like get rid of it. As in, like in college, I would like have lunch before a class. So I would have to like sit in the hall during lecture. And my desire to sit in the hall and absorb the material outweighed my desire to like run outside of the, <laughs> the classroom. So that helped. And also right. eating with people also helped because I would see them eat bigger portions than me. And some of them would like be really encouraging. Like, hey, Michelle, go have some more bites. That really helped too. And also I didn't want to seem weird by like disappearing right after a meal. So I would stay there. And of course that meant... I wouldn't be able to like go do a crazy exercise routine right after eating. All those things help reduce the exercise compulsion. And even to this day, honestly, I still think I'm that kind of person who always feels like they have to like on the go. But I tell myself, no, I'm going to take a rest day and like a rest morning, evening, afternoon, night, everything. Because I already know that I just naturally drive myself too hard. It gives the one the illusion that they're somehow striving and getting ahead. But in the long term, in the end, it just ends up driving one to emaciated misery. So I try really hard to 
if I ever do physical movement now, not do it to a point where I end up feeling faint, where I feel like I'm like ravenous for food. I only do it in moderation. And I always stop before I think I've pushed myself too hard. I was so used in the past doing really intense exercise, pushing myself to the breaking point because I was told like, ah, this is, you know, what you do because you're tough. But now I'm like, no, actually, because I'm because I have greater knowledge of my body and I'm smarter now, thanks to the education people have told me. Now I'm just going to stop when it feels like moderate exercise because I want to be able to like cycle and lift weights and do things that are crazy athletic when I'm 90. And that can't happen if I break myself before I'm 40. Right. Yeah. Beautiful foresight. You say so many things that um, are just so uh, thought provoking. You know, you, we talk about the overstressing the body and all of this focus on intense exercise and all that really does is secrete cortisol and it actually increases our fight or flight ironically. And so I think that that can only perpetuate migration theory, uh, you know, the, the migration uh, concept. So definitely you being able to get a handle on those was fantastic. It also sounds like a lot of primary foods from your life flooded in. You mentioned your schoolwork and how much you loved, you know, with the class, you, you mentioned your social life. And so you really demonstrated that crowding out theory. Uh, you touched on um, the concept of fearing like worst case scenario. And so what Dr. Lyle speaks about is uh, much of the link between anorexia and OCD being about the fact that in both cases, we are overestimating, in most cases of anxiety, in fact, we are overestimating worst case scenario. And so for many individuals suffering eating disorders saying, oh my goodness, I'm going to get fat, I'm going to get sick, I'm going to, I'm going to, we are actually overestimating the worst case scenario. And when I work with my clients on uh, both eating disorder and OCD treatment, we work with the model of exposure and response prevention, where just as you described, when you sat still after that meal, you actually were, the anxiety diminished. When we confront what it is that we're fearing and realize, you know what? Our survival rate is 100%. Nothing has gone wrong. It's not that bad. Our anxiety diminishes completely, but it's about having the courage to sit with it. You also spoke, Michelle, about, um, you used the word wrong a couple times. It felt wrong to eat this. It felt, mm -hmm. I know at one point we were speaking and you sort of said like, oh, it's scandalous, you know, and I, mm -hmm. and it sounds like the adapted to famine concept was really able to show you that this is actually right. This isn't wrong. Mm -hmm. This is right. And so the voices saying this is wrong, those are, those are not, those are not from us. Those are not from our history and our, and our evolution, our biology. They are not from our village because the village want, the village says, please be able to help us. Please be around for us. Please be here to contribute to the village. And in fact, depression, dysthymia, uh, those are rooted in a, in a feeling, even suicidality is ultimately rooted in a feeling that one is of no, no longer of service or no longer of value to the village. And so by restricting, you know, and what an anorexic is doing, getting closer to a state of starvation is actually diminishing their own value in the village, thereby actually reinforcing the cycle of, oh, I'm no good to the village. And it's kind of a, a vicious cycle there, as opposed to taking right actions, which to me sounded like they probably immensely pleased your internal audience big time. And then being able to say, you know what, here I am village. And the village is like, thank you. <laughs> yes, yes, precisely. Someone actually recently reached out to me. She's 42 years old. She's had anorexia since high school. We were talking about what's holding you back from committing to recovering. We went through this exercise where I asked her to identify what she values most. And for her, it's like taking care of her children, being there for her family and friends. And I feel like a lot of people with anorexia also have the personality where they do really care a lot about what other people think about them. They want to be the number one star in the village. That's why their genes are telling them you got to restrict for the whole village. So for this woman who reached out to me, once we talked about her values, I asked her, clearly you want to be able to be there for your family and your friends. Are you able to be there for them when you're currently having osteoporosis and you are having like a low heart rate and you are having these other physical symptoms? And the answer to that was clearly no. I think when people with anorexia go through this kind of values exercise and realize that the anorexia is holding them back from being able to contribute to their social circles and those closest to them, that is really powerful to them because their conscientiousness makes them think, I need to perform the best. So this woman, she works as a pharmacist and I was also explaining to her how because you're having these distracting thoughts of food, 
you're not able to perform as well in your job. And her job is very high stress. She has to work in the ICU. It is so demanding and that takes a lot of mental energy. But anorexia takes away so much of that from us and just affects every aspect of our lives. Overall, it's, it's really about honing in on the values that helps people overcome things. And that helped me overcome it too. Yeah, absolutely. So then you're not running that cognitive dissonance. As you went through this process, Michelle, talk about the support you were getting. You had, you had friends around you, your family. Were you seeing her? Or were you seeing a therapist? The only time I saw an Ean Disorder therapist was when I went through FBT when I was 17. After that, because that was such a bad experience for me, I was like, I'm not working with anybody trained in this traditional Ean Disorder treatment model because I know what they're going to tell me. I know they're not going to believe me and mm -hmm. all of that. The people who I relied on were family and friends who were supportive of me gaining weight. Shan Geisinger was somebody who I never reached out to or worked with one-on-one. -on -one. It, it just happened that I made that video about her work after I recovered to help share with her like, hey, thank you, this is how you helped me. For me, the support network was absolutely crucial. I chose to most closely associate with those who want me to gain weight. There were people in my life who were very nice, but they were like too nice to the point where they're like, oh, it's okay you're so skinny, Michelle. It's okay you don't have your period. It's okay you have all this kind of stuff. You do you. This is like who you are. You're just naturally this hyper skinny, like whatever. They were such nice people, great intentions, but I knew that if I continued listening to that kind of talk, I would never recover because I would continue to get this positive esteem from my village telling me that it's okay to be sick which it right, wasn't. Right, very, very important, yeah. Yeah, so what helped me in particular was hanging around friends and family who were always supporting me to eat more. For me at that time, my family had you know turned around and they were all like, go for it, Michelle, and they're really, really supportive and nice. Also, I had friends who, they could tell I was struggling and they approached me from a point of empathy and compassion and concern. As in, I remember when I was 17, I first was telling my friend, oh, I haven't had my period for a couple of months. And my friend said, hmm, that doesn't sound normal. Maybe you should see a doctor. Just make sure everything's okay. And that friend continued to be like really encouraging to me. And I was like, okay, this person's like a safe person to talk to about this. And there were other friends who, if we had shared meals together, they would say like, oh, Michelle, like you didn't bring that much food. Like, why don't you bring more next time? In a super non-judgy way, I felt honored. I was like, oh, this person really cares deeply about me and it helped me feel even closer to them. There's one friend who really struck out to me. She got so close to me to the point where she knew like my favorite foods and stuff. So she would mm -hmm. go like buy these calorically dense foods. She like eat them in front of me and be like, hey Michelle, do you want some? And at first I was really like, no, absolutely never. And I denied right. her so many times, but eventually, you know, I caved. I like, <laughs> I would like take the food that she offered me and I ate it right. and I loved it. And it was like a celebration because obviously when I ate the food, it was like a party in my mouth. I'm like, oh my gosh, this tastes so good. I knew it tastes so good. And it really touched me because at the time she herself was in a bigger body and she was trying to lose weight. And it was beautiful how the two of us could have completely opposite goals, but she was able to see like how I was facing a different struggle than her. And she had the kind of empathy to be able to understand what I was going through and never once judged me harshly. Instead, she always gave the positive feedback, the compassion, the reinforcement. I met her when I was 20, so at the time when I was at my lowest weight ever. At this time, a lot of people were you know, giving me lots of negative flack, like, you know, you look terrible, like, what's wrong with you, this kind of stuff. Those are the people I ran away from. But this really wonderful friend who I cherish, she said like, okay, you're like, too skinny, but that doesn't make you like a terrible person internally. You can you know, get better. And because of her, I think I was also able to finally come to terms with the fact that I did have anorexia, I did have a problem because anisognosia is a term for the inability to recognize that you have an illness. And it's very prevalent in anorexia because our brains fool ourselves into thinking we're okay. I definitely had this to a huge, huge extent. That friend was one of the first people I admitted to that I had an eating problem. Everybody else, I couldn't really say it out loud because I didn't believe it. But to her, mm -hmm. I finally said one night, I was like, hey, I think, I think maybe I do have a problem with eating. I realized that I feel faint all the time, that I literally have to like count every step I'm taking because I feel so faint, like I'm gonna fall over or something. I don't get what's happening. I feel so hungry all the time. She took it very, very well. She was just like, yeah, I understand, Michelle. It's like she could, you know, see right through me. So wise. Yeah. It's beautiful. You really surrounded yourself with the right kinds of people. I, I firmly believe that the, our vibe attracts our tribe. And it's important for us to filter the 
the, you know, we talk about the foods that we eat being so important for our bodies, but the images that we're around, the people we're around, the, the influences in our lives are, are our nourishment on a, on a brain and soul level in so many ways. And you were very wise in putting yourself, you know, into that. You've done an amazing job at explaining the real biological uh, bases, you know, basis of this, this illness. And, you know, before we sort of, um, I have a couple concluding questions for you, but I did want to know your take on emotional eating. Do you feel that it's possible still to eat, to, you know, to, to, to binge out of e for emotional reasons other than just being hungry? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's this whole model called HALT, which I'm sure you've heard of. It's an acronym, yeah. which stands for when you're about to eat a bunch of food, ask yourself, are you hungry, angry, lonely, tired? And I truly believe that feeling these emotions Plus having things like full-time job, all this, all these other stresses in our lives, kids to take care of, all of that is enough to make somebody want to grab a Twinkie. Like, it's just, yeah. it's, for me personally, I, especially when I was anorexic and feeling any of those HALT symptoms, angry, lonely, tired, or anything, I looked to food as this kind of thing that would give me that instant dopamine rush. And especially because I deal with chronic pain, sometimes when it's really bad, the only thing right. that can make me feel better, distract me, is like diving into some food. I know people like Dr. Doug Lyle and Dr. Jen Hawk say emotional eating is not a thing, it doesn't exist, but at least in my own experience, I think it does exist. And I think it makes sense because food does placate us. When we eat it, we feel less stress. We get that dopamine rush. It's comforting. It's the most accessible drug. Yeah. Yes, yes, it's the most accessible drug. Yes, absolutely. Oh, you said it so perfect. I have to remember that one. Uh. Um, and, and like you always say, it's a drug that we can't abstain from because we right. all have to eat to survive. So for sure, emotional eating, I think, exists. And I think we need to recognize that people with anorexia yeah. are facing such emotional challenges in their lives. They do need the emotional support by professionals like you to help them weather all those challenges. Recovery yeah. itself is a whole roller coaster of emotions which must be navigated, and eventually there does have to be guidance which helps anorexic patients know that they do have like fraught emotions related to food, and maybe things like feeling sad and depressed will drive them to eat more. Mm -hmm. And maybe temporarily it is okay to be binging on food all the time because mm -hmm. they do need to gain lots of weight. But when you are weight restored, it is important to recognize what is driving my binges still, if it, if it is not caused by eating disorder. Yeah, that's a really good point because not all, I mean, you're an incredible woman and you, you took this on, you, you self-educated, you got the knowledge, you assimilated it and you put it into action for yourself. You enlisted support of wonderful people. Uh, most of the clients that I see I really need handholding through the process. And so what you're so inspiring for a, a therapist like me um, with is that I, I, it gives me a glimpse into the actual process that someone's going through to be able to guide, not only on an action-oriented level, here's what we're going to do. And as you know, I'm working on a manual to develop some actual like activities that can support the EP concepts day by day, moment by moment, but also uh, to be able to look at the emotions that are that are coming in as well. You know, Michelle, I'm curious, um, what would you tell somebody who has an eating disorder, who who wants to, in, uh, who, who knows they need help and is looking to begin, uh, perhaps in general psychology or informed by evolutionary psychology, what, what would you say being on the other side now? I would say, first of all, to learn about Dr. Shan Geisinger's adaptive famine theory because it was what really flipped the switch for me and was different from what everyone else was saying. And to learn about her theory, I recommend going on her website, adaptedtofamine.com, or also watching my videos explaining it, or also going to Tabitha Ferrar's work because she also is an eating disorder recovery coach who talks a lot about the theory and ties it into her own experiences. These are the resources that help motivate you to recover and understand what's going on in your body. And beyond that, it is necessary to support yourself with people who will encourage you to gain weight. Surround yourself with those who are caring, who give you positive esteem, and who want you to recover. This made a huge difference in my life, and I've learned more and more from talking to other people that not everyone has these support networks, and this truly hinders the recovery. Because anorexia itself is caused by the thought that the whole tribe needs me to restrict. So I think it is crucial that an anorexic surrounds themselves 
with a tribe that wants them to gain weight in order for them to actually break away from their unhelpful behaviors. Absolutely. The opposite of addiction is connection. And you speak so much uh, during, you know, during your, our interview about the fact that, that making connections and linking into people who understood you, approached you in a non-judgmental fashion, were, were kind of nonchalant about things. I think that that goes a very, very long way. And the people and those people are out there. They're absolutely out there. Um, so, you know, one of the things that excited me most when I met you is is not only the incredible recovery journey you've been on, but how you want how you are pursuing um, a degree in psychology now a graduate degree and you are going to be bringing work in evolutionary psychology as a practitioner to the field. Can you talk about how you want to use this? Will you work with clients who have eating disorders? Will that be your patient's specialty? Where do you see yourself going? That's a great question. So I'm only in my first quarter of school right now for counseling. I do truly want to take this knowledge from my own personal experience and help bring it out to the world, which is why I'm public about my recovery and my journey. I produce videos on this subject and resources. I feel like it'll always be something that's part of my work. I don't know yet about specialty per se. Part of that is because I mean, it sort of feels like a 24-7 job. And yeah. after having it for what feels like a disproportionate amount of my life, I'm like, you know what? Sometimes I just don't want to think about food. I want to like, move on from this. And this is something I, I kind of still struggle with. It's like, yeah, I want to be really engaged in the community. But at the same time, there are a lot of other things I want to think about. Like for me, freedom from an eating disorder means that I can finally do all the things I want to do that have no relation to food. But at the same time, with my experiences, I feel so compelled to, to share things. So there's that fine balance I have to tread. In the end, no matter what, whether I officially call it my specialty or not, I'm always going to be doing work in the eating disorder field because this field needs so much reform. And there are so few voices like us who are promoting this kind of change. But if we continue to talk about this, more and more people will get the message and more and more people will finally recover for life. I couldn't agree more. I love you talked about that blend because there's such thing as too much conflation with uh, a topic that we're in and getting too close to it such that um, it's almost like the countertransference that, that happens. I used a psychoanalytical term, but the, that happens in, in therapy is, is too strong where we're over-identifying with a client. At the same time, we don't want to be so far removed that we have no concept. So I think that's a great, a great uh, blend that you speak about. With my clients, I, eating disorders are just something that I deal with comorbidly because a lot of times with addiction, you know, there are eating uh, challenges. I work also with a lot of whole food plant-based individuals and, and um, it, it's, you know, I know we discuss the chicken or the egg, but in reality, people on a health mission trying to get healthy are usually facing some sort of issue with the body. So I want to be able to bring EP to absolutely anything and everything out there. And one thing that we, you know, as we're speaking that I really think about is I think it's so important for, for parents, for doctors to catch moments in which individuals become underweight uh, it, by no fault of their own, because, you know, we discussed the fact that there's an assumption of, oh, you just restricted, you feel like losing weight. Well, many males have anorexia hundreds of thousands of males. And we do not have a stereotypical, uh, you know, concept in society of, of, uh, oh, you know, you get skinny for as a, as a man. However, that, so, so that kind of dismisses the idea that this is all social influence in so many ways. And I think to be able to look at, you have, re, you have gotten underweight. We know from the work of Dr. Shanghai Singer that, uh, you know, Tabitha Farrar, that, that, you are going to now begin obsessing about food. You're going to begin moving a lot and you're going to begin wanting to restrict more food. This is going to the Minnesota starvation experiment. This is going to become a vicious cycle. What can we do now before it gets to that? So I think a lot of work can be done on the front end. And, and as we speak, Michelle, one thing I really want to drive home is I know that in eating disorder recovery, sometimes it's it feels as though individuals are are alone, very alone, and we discuss the importance of social connection. But also, they often feel like, "Wow, it was easy for that person, but I could never do that." And you know, myself, I've read eating disorder recovery books 
and heard, you know, podcasts and interviews where people sort of say, it was like a eureka in the bathtub. It was like one morning I just woke up and I was like, I almost binged on a bagel and I said, no, I'm not going to do this, you know, and, or, or I, I, for, I had that, that big hearty breakfast that I knew I should be having. And, and to individuals really struggling out there, it can look like I almost ego trap, right? It's, it's too impossible. So I'm just not going to stop now. And so what I, what it's such a process and what you really elucidate is that this happens over time and what you're able to do is to say, these are the reasons it's happening. Let's stick with the knowledge of the whys. And what I hope as a practitioner, highly influenced by individuals like you and inspired is to be able to say, step-by-step, step, here's how we're going to stick and stay with this process. And it's not supposed to happen. It's not supposed to happen overnight, but it's doable. It is absolutely doable. We have to start somewhere. We have to swim away from the wall to be able to get to the other end of the pool. Absolutely. You're reminding me now of a thought I often had during the recovery process was that unlike with so many other things, with an eating disorder, I, I can't gain dozens of pounds overnight. That's physically impossible. Right. And so I'm actually so grateful that I went through this recovery process because it taught me to finally slow down. It's biologically impossible to gain, I think it's about like over two pounds per week or something like that. That's not possible. I could do everything in my power to try to gain more than that, but I couldn't. This was a necessary slamming of the brakes in my life because beforehand, I was like a rat on a wheel going at breakneck speed. If someone gave me something to do, I'd always try to finish it in half the time. I'd try to cram as much as I could into 24 hours of my day to finally be reduced to the point where I just had to lay in bed all day. And all I could do is listen to a podcast called Beat Your Jeans. Mm -hmm. That was right. a wonderful well, point Well, it doesn't life. sound that bad. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound that bad, yeah. At least to, right. to me, it felt terrible because I was like, there's so much sure. else, else yeah. I want to do. But, yeah. but that was the slowdown I really needed. And so for people who are going through recovery or relapsing or things like that, or feeling like they're hitting a wall, I want them to know that this is all just part of the whole beautiful process of honoring your body's need to take time to heal. In today's world, especially with the internet, everything is instant. But yeah. in the end, we can't force our bodies to repair themselves any faster than they already naturally will. All we can do is remove all the harm we're doing to our bodies and let our bodies do the thing that they're meant to do, which is to heal itself. I love that. Like get out of its way, right? Just get out of its way. And uh, I'm, I'm channeling Dr. Jen Hawk, igniting the mystic chip here. But, you know, I, I do strongly believe that the universe conspires in our favor. They say things happen for us, not to us. And so the fact that you went through this was, was terribly unfortunate, of course, for yourself and everyone in your life. But look at where you are now and look at what you're bringing to the world, your quality of life. You radiate such positivity. You are, you are the kind of person that people want to be around. And you, you have taken the action. You created this. You made this happen. And that's a really, really beautiful thing. Um, Michelle, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to share? Uh, you've had an incredible journey and I'm so grateful to, to hear everything. I certainly am highly inspired. Thank you. There are a couple of things I want to share. First of all, I want to underscore just how deadly and prevalent eating disorders are. So they affect at least 9% of the population worldwide. As we said before, they're the deadliest men mental illness with the highest mortality rate. It's 12 times higher than the death rate of all causes of death for females 15 to 24 years old. Also, like you said, people with anorexia can be males too. And in fact, about 10 to 15% of people with anorexia or bulimia are males. And it's probably an underreported figure because males may be ashamed to admit they have an eating disorder even more than females already are. And there was actually this one study of 131 Cornell University football players, which found that 40% of them had eating disordered behaviors like binging and purging. And purging is not just vomiting. Purging is also defined by doing things like over-exercising. And men with bulimia tend to over-exercise and call it their effort to stay in shape when really it's an eating disorder. I also want to make it very clear that if you think you have an eating problem, you probably do have one. You don't need to have lost your period or have a thin appearance to have an eating disorder. People in bodies of all sizes have eating disorders. I think at the end of the day, labels are unhelpful and I want people to know that if they are concerned about their eating, 
they should get that addressed because eating is one of our core human actions. Food is vital to our survival. As you say, we cannot abstain from it. It is the drug we cannot abstain from. And so cultivating a healthy relationship with food is essential to having a healthy life. Also, I go by the mantra, eat to live, not live to eat. Life right. is more than just food. But when you have an eating disorder, life becomes all about food. So I also want people to know that food is great, but in the end, it enables so many other things that are what we truly want for our joy and meaning, such as our close connections with other people. Absolutely. They, you know, it's, uh, I, I say to my clients that, um, you know, life itself is the best dessert out there. It's truly about, about nourishing on, on the sweetness, the sweetness of life itself. You are such an incredible role model, Michelle. I, I hope that so many people uh, see this interview and get your information, not just about the EP and adapted to famine model, but about the fact that this is absolutely doable. You are living proof that this is doable. And I, I'm so impressed with your journey. Like I said, it is incredibly inspiring. And I hope to continue to bring the changes that we want to see to the field of mental health. Thank you, Kiki. You too are carrying the torch of wisdom in this kind of field. Often when I hear people like Dr. Shan Geisinger and Dr. James Greenblatt and other veterans speak, their voice is laced with exasperation because they have spent decades mm -hmm. rallying against a whole bunch of people who refuse to listen to them. I don't blame them for feeling that way because mm -hmm. it is so frustrating to keep hearing it over and over again. <laughs> And right. for you, you too radiate that kind of endless joy that is so motivating to other people and makes other people more receptive to the message. We all know that people like to listen to positive messages the most, and that is truly what you deliver, what you bring to the table, along with all that practical goodness, which will be coming in your up and coming manual, which I absolutely cannot wait for. Well, it's it's speaking with people like you that is helping fuel that fire. And I can tell you that I, I, decades of work in the addiction field and in all sorts of treatment, I can tell you that I, I you know, I, I received the question from someone studying uh, mental health in a graduate level. How, do you, don't you get burnout? And burnout, I say burnout's like boredom. It is a mental construct. And we are responsible for entertaining ourselves. We are responsible for keeping at bay that burnout. Every person with whom I work is a fascinating individual. There's no right, wrong, good, bad. There's what makes sense to us in the moment. And we are uncovering this amazing thing called life together. So it's bewilderment and, and happiness as much as possible and, and compassion and understanding all the time. So thank you so much for sharing these gems with myself and with the world today, Michelle. I really see you at the forefront of so much. And I feel personally very happy to be able to call you my friend, my colleague in an incredible field, and a soulmate. Thank you, Kiki. It's the virtuous cycle. I feel all the same ways about you, and I can't wait for how we'll continue to collaborate and support each other in the future and change this field. You can contact Kiki Atonito at kikiatonito at protonmail.com. I've also included the link in the video description. Also, you can find out more about my work on my website, michellesen.com. That's michellecen.com. You can subscribe to my newsletter there too. Thank you so much and I'll see you around.